0: Welcome to this episode of Healthcare Unfiltered, a Shadi Nabhan podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Thank you for tuning in to Healthcare Unfiltered, where we tackle all healthcare topics, no matter how difficult they are, no matter how controversial they are, all in an unfiltered manner. Prior to Healthcare Unfiltered, as you recall, for those of you loyal listeners, I hosted the Outspoken Oncology podcast. And as of October 2020, we shifted to Healthcare Unfiltered because the scope of this podcast is shifting to be more inclusive of all topics of healthcare beyond medical oncology and hematology. And because we don't want to filter anything, no edits will ever happen to this podcast So you hear it's raw and unfiltered. You know, look, over the past several weeks, There's so much been talked about, uh, about vaccines for the COVID-19, for the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And um, there's so much going on about vaccine distribution, supply chain, why are the vaccines not being received by this and that, and how come some folks are being vaccinated, others not being vaccinated, first dose, second dose, Pfizer, Moderna. And I really have had uh, my biggest issue with all of this vaccine uh, debacle has been that uh, I, I strongly believe that the uh, folks that are most vulnerable to dying from the vaccine should be the ones who get vaccinated first. Now, I realize the importance of vaccinating healthcare workers because healthcare workers are on the front lines and they are going to take care of these folks that are sick. But if you think about it, if you vaccinate folks who are older, who have been shown to have the highest mortality from COVID-19, if infected, then you will have less hospitalizations. You will have less ICU admissions. You will have less burden on the healthcare workers. And even the healthcare workers will be less uh, uh, vulnerable and exposed to folks who are sick when you don't have a lot of sick people that get admitted to the hospital. Now, having said that, in the US, the decision has been made under many guidelines that um, healthcare workers are going to get vaccinated first, and then we had the issue of, well, we have a lot of vaccines on the shelf, and, and not everybody's being vaccinated, and is it the federal government, the state level, who is responsible for what, and, and so forth. A lot of issues pertaining to vaccines. My stand remains the same personally, that I think older patients, and those who are at highest risk of dying from the vaccine, From the the disease, are the ones that should be vaccinated first because I strongly believe this will lower the mortality, will mitigate the morbidity, and will also help hospitals' capacity and healthcare workers. I do think that from a healthcare workers' perspective, we need to vaccinate the ICU staff, the emergency room staff. But look, if you are working in the lab and you are not seeing a you have no patient contact, I'm not really sure why you need to be vaccinated if you are in the confines of a, of a hospital. Just because you're in the confines of a hospital does not really qualify you to a frontline healthcare worker. So there's a lot here to talk about. And I clearly, you can probably sense, I have pretty strong views about this. Uh, we also uh, have heard a lot about vaccine mandates. You know, Should, be, should it be uh, mandatory? Should it not be mandatory? And all of that stuff. Well, look, uh, it's very important to uh, have a sounding board when it comes to all of this in terms of mandates, ethics, who should be vaccinated first or last. And for this, I am hosting again uh, one of my favorite guests, Dr. Allison Bateman House, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Population Health at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. She had her PhD from Columbia University and MPH from Columbia University as well. We've had Alison on several episodes of the podcast. We talked about the um, right to try bill on my previous podcast. We talked about the ethics pertaining to COVID-19 and what has happened in terms of can really uh, healthcare workers deny working at a hospital if they're not being provided by the proper PPEs, all of that. But today we're going to focus on vaccines, distribution, mandates, and all issues pertaining to the vaccines for SARS-CoV-2. Before I air the episode I taped with Alison Bateman House, I'd like to plug the show by asking you to find Healthcare Unfiltered on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Stitcher, all podcast outlets. Wherever you get your podcast, you will find Healthcare Unfiltered. Give us the number of stars you believe we deserve, write a brief review, subscribe to the podcast and refer a friend or a colleague to the podcast. It would be really great to recommend this podcast to your friends and uh, let them know about some of the topics in the episodes that might be of interest to them. Without further ado, Dr. Allison Bateman-House on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast, talking all things vaccines for COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2. All right, well, here she is again, you know, my go-to person anytime I'm puzzled and confused uh, about a lot of matters pertaining to public health, uh, ethics, and uh, mandates, and, and what's going on, Dr. Allison Bateman-House. Allison, maybe just briefly introduce yourself. I, I did a quick monologue telling folks who you are, but just briefly in terms of how you distribute your time in terms of what you do and, and, where, uh, and, and um, you know, how, how busy have you been with all of this debacle with COVID-19?
1: Uh, I've been very busy the last multiple months, but not necessarily vaccines, everything. I don't know if you remember a few months ago, we were talking about who was gonna get access to ventilators when uh, you know there's there's more demand on the system that can be accommodated and who's gonna get access to investigational drugs if there's not enough for everyone. So it's it's been a very busy year as an ethicist, but anyway, so yes, let me introduce myself. I'm Allison Bateman House. I'm an assistant professor of medical ethics at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. Uh, it has always been a pleasure to come and talk to you about my work, which is basically at the intersection of Ethics, you know, concerning what should we do, and health policy in terms of what are we going to do and how. So that's me.
0: There is a book to be written about this. I, I, I have a feeling there will be a lot of books written about this. But, <laughs> but, sure. but, but I, 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 I fear a lot of the books that will be written will be more uh, politics because clearly we know how politics played out over the past year or so. And I'm, I'm hoping that one of the books will be really about public health lessons and you know opportunities to do hopefully better if possible in the future. Maybe it's worth starting, Alison, in just when you look back at the past year and, and taking the political uh, discussion away, what, what lessons as a public health expert you think that we are learning that you could do differently uh, in the future if we're faced with a pandemic? Hopefully not, but you know what, what are these lessons?
1: Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna deviate from your question to address two things real quick. Number one, uh, I introduced myself as an ethicist and now you're asking me about public health. So I guess I should explain to your listeners that I wear multiple hats. I am a bioethicist. That's what I consider myself first and foremost, but I am also a public health professional, been in the field for uh, decades at this point, and also just to round it out, I'm a historian of medicine, so I wear lots of hats. So I guess at the moment I'll wear my my public health professional hat. And as a public health professional who's been in the field for decades, I will just tell you that on behalf of the field, we are so uh, I'll forego the cursing, but uh, incredibly bizarre, uh, you know, just unbelievably frustrated because there are none to few lessons that will come out of this that we have not learned amply in the past. We went through this with SARS. We went through this with H1N1. Uh, we even went through many of these same questions back with the 9-11 attacks. So when you say that there should be a book about the, the lessons to learn from this, there are books out there from each one of those. Uh, I was involved in several of them and apparently nobody outside of us read them. So it's just been incredibly frustrating to have uh, a stockpile of expertise that has been systematically ignored and everyone acts like this is a new thing that we have to figure out from scratch
0: so let, let's talk i mean we're taping this on january 10th and it's going to air on january 19th uh, so in 10 days and um you know a lot of folks are saying that there is light at the end of the tunnel because uh, vaccines uh, vaccines are available and so forth but uh Help me understand what's going on. I mean, I don't see vaccines being distributed as effectively as we all would want to. That's one issue. So maybe we can talk about that, at least your opinion into why this is happening. And more importantly, are we okay with who is getting the vaccine and who is not? I mean, I personally have been very vocal that I think older patients and vulnerable patients should be vaccinated first. I got a lot of backlash that I'm not very sensitive to the healthcare workers, but I believe if you vaccinate the older folks and the more vulnerable, you actually help the healthcare workers by reducing exposure, hospitalizations, ICU, and you still you still can vaccinate healthcare workers are taking care of these patients. But what, are we doing it right in terms of vaccination distribution? What are your thoughts?
1: Well, let me first say, uh, when you say that a lot of people say there's a light at the end of the tunnel because we have vaccines. Vaccines will never get us to the end of the tunnel. What will get us to the tunnel, end of the tunnel is vaccine utilization. So you can have the best, most effective, fewest side effect vaccine of all time. And unless it gets into people and into people in the, in the manner that is actually going to create you know, immunity, uh, it does us no good. So the my big frustration with Operation Warp Speed over this last year has been that it was uh, laser focused on getting us a vaccine, which was of course important, but there was not as much effort spent on distribution and, and thinking about what to do to actually bolster public confidence in the vaccine to get people to use it. So uh, I, I have been incredibly vocal over the last year that I think rather than bolstering confidence in the vaccine, there have been numerous missteps, many of them uh, brought about by political uh, circumstances that have actually fostered a sense of distrust in the vaccine. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's well and good that, that uh, Pfizer and Moderna are churning out vaccine as, well, as fast as they can and that other sponsors are testing new vaccines, but at the same time, we need to have a, uh, you know, just all hands on deck effort right now to identify why people are not getting the vaccine. And that involves both the, the logistical issues that need to be fixed, but also a lack of confidence in the vaccine. So, so that's a huge issue. Now, uh, and, I, and I will say that there, ha- there has been effort you know, on the part of health policy people, ethicists, et cetera, to come up with a prioritization strategy, because, you know, when there's limited amounts of an intervention, a vaccine, as well as any other type of medical intervention, there's going to be Differential access to it. And the question is, what was what was the way that we could do this that made the most sense. You know, there was a there was an article in Stat News a couple weeks ago that said we should let people buy their way to the front of the line because we can use that money that's generated to help with, you know, free public clinics and vaccine vans and what have you. So that's that's one point of view that, you know, you should let people Uh, You know, let let them let the market uh, work. We're we're in a capitalist society. Let the market work, and then utilize the the resources that we uh, receive as a result of that to to further efforts to get the vaccine out to other people who can't buy their way to the front of the line. I personally don't accept that. Uh, I'm not a big fan of that idea, but it's certainly an idea that uh, you know should at least be contemplated. Although the, the the horse is out of the stable now, I guess. Uh, is, is that the idiom? The, 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 the wagon is in front of the, the cart is in front of the horse. I don't know what my yeah. idiom is, but, yeah. but, you know, because we really seem to have pursued this prioritization strategy. And then the problem with the prioritization strategy is there are so many different populations of people who have claim to being uh, prioritized I don't, I can work at home. I don't have contact with patients. I can order in my groceries uh, and I don't have any significant underlying conditions. So, you know, on the prioritization front I should be at the back of the line. That being said, I work at a hospital. And so I actually have access to the vaccine right now if I want it. So, you know, the prioritization strategy I I think even if it it was the way we wanted to go it, it has not rolled out perfectly. Uh, and then, of course, there's the fact that perfection is the enemy of the good. So where do we draw the line between you know, what would be the ideal and what is good enough? And at this point in time, I really uh, am sort of of the opinion that maybe we should just have it be open to anyone who wants it. If you can figure out how to get yourself to a hospital, get there, get it vaccinated. And, and I have to say, I think that actually has some basis in, in public health policy, in terms of the fact that the whole reason we want a vaccine is yes to protect individuals, but equally as important to get enough percentage of the population vaccinated so that the disease cannot spread. That's something called herd immunity. The idea is that if one person has the disease, they don't come into contact with anyone who they can transmit it to because there's enough percentage of the, the population that is protected by, by virtue of having been vaccinated. The best estimates that I've seen about what would be necessary for herd immunity for COVID in the United States at present is about 70% of the population uh, vaccinated. And if you're really trying to hit that large number of people and to do so in the quickest amount of time possible, you know, I re- really am not sure the prioritization strategy is going to get us there. Even though I certainly, as an ethicist, understand sort of the the moral Reason to to really say there are people who are at heightened risk, and we should try to protect them first. So it's it's a sticky wicket. I'm not going to argue it's not a sticky wicket, but, but if I
0: think we talk, if we talk about prioritization, I mean, who makes the call? Like who who makes the decision? Federal, CDC, state uh, institutions, uh, clinics, because. I mean if if you think about it if I'm if I if if I'm to prioritize I would say maybe I would go to the hot spots I mean is is going to the hot spots and saying let's vaccinate people in the hot spots and we clearly can tell that from infection rates and so forth or uh, or do we go to the older and vulnerable and I mean how do we how should we prioritize if me and you were in charge what would you tell me to do
1: If you and I were in charge, I would say, before we come up with any strategy, we have to understand the context in which we're going to be operating. And there are two things that we have to understand that are essential. Number one, we have fundamentally unequal access to healthcare interventions of any type in this country. It's not just vaccines. It's not just, you know, newfangled treatments, anything, insulin, uh, well, well child checkups, et cetera. There are people who are able to go get those easily, and there are people for whom that is a significant struggle. So that's the context in in which we've got to work, number one. And number two, when you're talking about public health, public health is, uh, because of our federal system, it is federal health policy and federal health interventions are all adjudicated on the local level. So no, this isn't a federal decision. This isn't something that the the Department of Health and Human Services is setting up. This isn't something Congress is setting up. This isn't something that even the CDC is setting up. And it's not even necessarily something that the states are setting up. This is something that on county by county, public health department by public health department, decisions are being made. And then I guess I I should have said there, there are three areas of context we need to understand because the third is, Uh, One of those lessons that I mentioned earlier that we should have learned from the past and then chose not to is that when you have a crisis, you cannot suddenly create a public health department from scratch. So we have systematically hollowed out our public health departments for decades. Uh, So we suddenly have, you know, institutions that are underfunded, have exceedingly high amounts of vacancies are still being expected to do all the things they normally do in terms of you know, monitoring cleanliness of water, et cetera, et cetera. And now suddenly they're having to handle all the COVID related contact tracing, vaccine distribution, et cetera. So I think when you put those three things together, it is no surprise that we've got a disaster on our hands and that we look significantly different from some country like Israel, for example, where you have less of those factors at play. So I think I would say before we come up with our ideal solution, that's what we need to understand. And now understanding that what is our ideal solution. And uh, whereas, again, I I understand the moral appeal of prioritization, I have to say, I would probably just let it be an open affair of here's where we're going to set up a, you know, large scale distribution, we're going to take your you know, your, your football stadium or your large convention center or something and just set up as many vaccination pods as possible and let people come um, and get it. And that is our attempt to get as large of the population vaccinated as possible uh, upfront. And, and then to, you know, to the extent that it's possible at the same time, be going to the, the nursing homes and, and places like that and, and trying to address some of these high priority people. But to me, I really think the volume issue in order to be effective in bringing this epidemic in our, in our nation you know, to, a, to a point of starting to diminish, we really need to get arm, shots into arms as quickly as possible without worrying too much about whose arms those are. The one stipulation to that is before I would open these large-scale distribution centers, I would have vaccinated your emergency room doctors and ICU uh, staff and what have you. I think you cannot morally or ethically ask these people to work if they are doing it at risk to themselves. So. That
0: I agree. I mean, I think the ICU staff, the ER staff should be absolutely vaccinated right away. I think my, my beef has been that... Uh, everybody within the confine of a hospital has been considered a healthcare worker that need to have access many folks who have no even interaction with patients. And I, I feel there are more folks who are probably at risk uh, than, than, a research volunteer, for example, in a lab who doesn't even see a patient.
1: No, nope. so I, I mean, and this is what I said earlier: like, the, there, there is absolutely no reason that I should have access to the vaccine right now. So I've chosen not to get it. But at the same time, you know, that bothers me because I'm saying the most important thing is just to get vaccinated. People vaccinated. So, you know, on one hand, I should practice what I preach and just go and get think, vaccinated. But on the other hand, in a system of prioritization, I don't think I should have priorities.
0: Right. So- but I think, I think, I think you should get. For a simple reason, just because you don't get it, it doesn't mean that somebody who's more vulnerable is gonna get it. That's the issue. Like, if if you had a choice, if you had a choice to say, okay, Allison, you could either get the vaccine. If you don't, you can give it to the seventy-eight-year-old man who has blah blah. Then I would say that's wonderful. You're making the right thing, a noble thing. But the reality is, you are—you don't have control over who's going to get. That's why. Right. So,
1: so I, I, you know, if I could say, rather than me getting this vaccine, I'm going to take the vaccine dose that has my name on it and give it to either of my parents who are elderly, mm-hmm. or to my husband who is a uh, public school principal and and is actually working on site uh or you know any of the other people who i think are at heightened risk than me i would love that but that's just not something that you can do to any any degree of you know i mean that's just logistically impossible really so so given that that dose with my name on it isn't going to go to any of those people should i go get it or not and i have really been uh torn over that over the last multiple weeks so so far I haven't gotten it doesn't mean that next week I won't go get it uh, you know it, I, I'm really going to have to continue to wrestle with this but I, I tweeted out actually this morning a question saying with regard to this issue with regard to you know what I as an individual should be doing really <laughs> you know what is my individual decision in the scheme of things when we're dealing with a, a systems issue you know what I mean like I can try my best to make the ethical choice for me but uh, you know it's really within the confines of a system that is not working well
0: yeah but so why didn't this happen like I, i love your idea about like you know open a convention center a stadium and just have vaccine stations and let anybody come in i mean as long as you are able to get in you'll get a vaccine and like why
1: So that is happening some places. This is what I'm saying. It goes back to what is your local health department doing? So there are certainly some places in the United States where that is what is happening. There are other places in the United States where that is not on the table at all. It really comes down to what had that local health department decides. And I, and I want to note that that's not as stupid as it may seem, you know, uh, I live in Manhattan And the realities on the ground in Manhattan are completely different from the realities on the ground in, say, like South Dakota, where you have incredibly low population density, huge distances to travel to hospitals, et cetera. So I I don't think it's absurd that you would have different strategies in different areas. That being said, I think that there's been a, a lot of confusion about, you know, well, why are the decisions? that are being made being made the way they are and not very many people understand that these are decisions being made in such a local context or that they're being made and trying to be implemented by a public health system that is really running on fumes. You know, there's no money, there's no people and the people who are here have been working in the context of a pandemic for a year and are exhausted.
0: Yeah. yeah. Like
1: you're not going to get a good outcome in that situation.
0: And, you know, there have been a lot of issues pertaining to first dose, second dose. Some folks gotten the first dose and they're saying, you know, instead of getting a second dose, give that second dose to other people. I don't know. Any opinions on that uh, first dose versus second dose? uh, uh, I have
1: opinions, but it's such a contentious topic. I'm afraid I'll get like charred and feathered by your audience. But um, yeah, my opinion is, uh, let's back up for one second. Yeah. This is not an approved vaccine. Okay, none of them, none of the COVID vaccines- Clarify
0: clarify that to listeners.
1: Yeah, none of of the COVID-19 vaccines are FDA approved as being safe and effective. They are being available to a certain percentage of the population under something called emergency use authorization, which says that during the context of a public health emergency, we are going to allow you to use this non-approved product outside of a clinical trial, uh, which is you know normally where you would be able to get access. But they're saying just in, in routine medical practice, we're allowing use of this unapproved product temporarily because the evidence available shows that it may help. So that's a very different standard of evidence from an actual approved product. And I think that this is probably partly the reason why so many frontline healthcare workers have chosen not to get to get the vaccine Um, You know, I know a lot of people have been shocked that, you know, you might have a 30% refusal rate at a hospital and and it's like, well, what do they know that I don't know in terms of why are they not getting this vaccine? I think it's because people understand that it's not an actually fully approved vaccine and just depending on what their individual risk tolerance is, they may decide, you know, I can go ahead and wait for this to be fully approved. And and normally, I'll just disclose normally I would be uh, in that camp of saying I'll just wait for for approval. But in, in this case, just looking at the data, I'm pretty convinced that these are, are safe and effective.
0: How how um, long does it usually take Allison from EUA to a full FDA approval time-wise?
1: No, so 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 <laughs> I think that's happened once. An EUA, an EUA is a a very new thing. We've we used it in Obviously in COVID-19, we've used it quite a lot, but we used it in Zika. We used it in Ebola. Uh, we used it in anthrax, if you can remember that far back and that's it. I mean, it's a fairly new authority. We haven't had it you know, all that long and the situations in which we've used it, we frequently have not gone on to actually have a approved product. So um, it, that did happen in Ebola, a vaccine that was used. Under EUA is now approved, uh, fully approved, and it's happened once so far in uh, COVID. We had a, a a product called Remdesivir, which is a, an antiviral that was used under emergency use a- authorization, and now it's gone on to be fully approved. But you know, we, we it's just such a new thing. We don't have a we don't have a great track record of being able to say, you know, well, 85 percent of the time products that are under EUA go on to be fully approved. We just don't we don't know that. So, why why did I start talking about this, Chadi? What, what what was the what was the question? What was the question you asked me that I, I said because, let's go back and talk yeah, about? Yeah,
0: because because you mentioned that there's a possibility that the high percentage of healthcare workers refusing to get the vaccine. Is because it's EUA and not FDA approved,
1: right? Which I think is, I think it's really important for people to understand the distinction between full approval and EUA. But but what was the question you asked me but, before? Yeah, that I was one?
0: asking what's the time that will take from EUA to FDA approval, and you said it's a new, yeah. We
1: don't we don't know.
0: Uh, we don't know the time because I wonder, because you know, I mean, part of me I, I think that there's always there are always folks in the U.S. who are just anti-vaccines. I mean, that's a, that's a fact. Um, it is
1: definitely a fact,
0: and I don't and, know. And, percent- globally,
1: and globally, globally, right. anti and, and, Yeah, and globally, global, I
0: right. just don't know the percentage. I think I've, I. It's been a while since I looked at uh, if there's really proper quantification. Maybe one quarter, maybe twenty-five to thirty percent. So, so part of me is saying, you know, it, it doesn't matter. These folks who are anti-vaccines, it doesn't matter whether it's FDA, EUA. There will be anti-vaccine is
1: absolutely true to to people who are anti-vaccine it does not matter whether it's fda approved or non-fda approved but i think that there's a a number of people who under and and i've i've heard this and i've seen this so i don't this is not just me of people who say you know look normally i'm very pro-vaccine i understand that they are a major public health you know success story but in this case i'm a little concerned And, you know, I I think that's understandable. So remember, I said there was a lot of political interference in the development of the vaccine and and many people, including myself, were concerned that the FDA was going to be pressured to make a vaccine available before we had even the evidence available to put an, to base an EUA off of that there was just going to be a you know look it's there go get it uh, even though it hasn't been fully tested yet so I am very pleased that those fears did not come to pass I think that these two vaccines that are currently available have been well tested and of course it's not perfect I mean we don't have like long-term data because oh, it, it's a, but, but you know uh, I, I think we have enough right now that people are not, Concerned that we're necessarily causing people harm by giving them these vaccines, uh, so so I think there I think there's a difference between those who are anti-vaccine anti-vaccination, those who are vaccine hesitant in general, and then people who are vaccine hesitant in this specific circumstance. So yeah. I, I think those are important nuances you need to dis- differentiate.
0: To your point, actually, I have had very educated and and pro-vaccine. Friends and colleagues who did say we understand it's safe and effective but but the follow up is really short you really can't based on the data available, all what you could say is with a follow up of like i don't know three four months whatever it is, but you really can't say that there is no one year or two year side effects and and I can understand that, so you have to do this individual risk versus benefit assessment and take it with the uh, like you to your earlier point also, don't let the perfect be the enemy of good, right? I mean, it's it's probably the best we're going to get and we have to follow whether we get side effects from it or not. There were just recent reports surfaced from a, about a physician, a young physician who died after the vaccine. I, I'm sure you saw the news and I, I don't have the details, to be honest. I, I don't know how much of that is. Causation is not always... Um, Causation
1: right. And right. Or... right. Tem- temporal proximity does not necessarily equal causation, right? So, so here's what I think is different about vaccines from other interventions. If it were, I'm going to go get this product to keep myself safe or to reduce my risk from COVID, uh, then I would be personally in favor, just for myself, of saying, you know, I'm going to wait a while. You know, we don't have long-term data and, you know, Whereas it looks like it is safe. I'm not 100% sure about its long-term efficacy. Like, you know, let's just wait a while and see where this goes. But the difference between vaccines and other products is that the vaccines, as I mentioned earlier, also have, if given in large enough numbers, lead to this uh, herd immunity benefit. Which means that people who cannot get vaccinated, people who are immunosuppressed, in this case children, because children are not eligible to get the vaccine under this emergency use authorization, um, you know, people who for whatever reason, you know, lack of a car, can't take time off from work, whatever, can't go get vaccinated. I am helping to protect them by getting vaccinated, and to me, that really pushes me across the line of, you know, well maybe I'll hold off a while and wait to, you know, it seems safe. And in vaccines, most of the safety concerns are of short-term duration after the vaccination, not something like two years later, something pops up. So just given the fact that, uh, you know, it seems safe, and whereas I'm not 100% sure what its long-term efficacy is gonna be, uh, I might get off my wait-and-see perch in this case, just because this is something that is killing and injuring so many people and I could play a role here in protecting them. Now, of course you can call me to my face a complete hypocrite because I just said that I haven't gotten vaccinated and I haven't decided whether I should do it or not. And I think this demonstrates the like horns of the dilemma I'm in. I think everyone, should at least consider going to get, get vaccinated if they fit the eua so you know please don't try to vaccinate your children they don't they don't fit the criteria but i, I would urge everyone to like seriously consider to go get vaccinated you're going to have to make your own decision but but i want you to at least think about doing it to protect your fellow neighbors and then in my case i am eligible to go get vaccinated but i feel really queasy about doing it because i feel like i am not as at risk as others, and they should have preferential access. So, you know, it's really—I it, it, have actually lost sleep over this. This is like a horrible thing for an ethicist to have to deal with.
0: Yeah, I did. Ha- I did see a lot of deltoids on Twitter. I mean, I think I've seen the deltoids of every single uh, person who vaccinated. <laughs> vaccinated uh, uh, with the idea, I believe, that many of the physicians on 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 Twitter, these social media believe that this might help encourage the uh, public. I, I don't know if it will or not. I think it probably won't hurt. I have my doubts that if you're an anti-vaccine, I think seeing the needle in the arm of many people is not going to change your, your look, opinion.
1: Look, if you're anti-vaccination oriented, Nothing is going to yeah. change your mind. You know, I've even seen people who are like, well, we should pay people to get vaccinated. If you believe that vaccines are harmful, you're not going to get it. So I think we just write those people off. We're, we're looking at the vaccine hesitant at this point right. and saying, what do we need to do to convince you? And that's where I think those selfies do come, do come in handy. So I, I published uh, just a little op-ed piece, maybe a month, month and a half ago at this point now. On Twitter, I just asked people, uh, you know, who should be the public face of the vaccination campaign uh, hearkening back to polio when, uh, you know, in a very famous uh, sort of media stunt, Elvis Presley was vaccinated against polio to sort of, you know, uh, convince, convince particularly teenagers that this is something that they wanted to go, to go do and i said you know given that we know there's lots of hesitancy about this particular vaccine who should be the public face uh, of the campaign and you know this was not a this was not a an academic or rigorous survey this was just me asking on twitter but but the answers i got were really uh interesting to me there were people who were pointing fingers at you know the opposite political party so they were saying you know uh, it's the Republicans who don't even believe that COVID-19 is a, is a disease. So we really need some high profile Republicans to be on camera getting vaccinated. Then there were other people who said, you know, it's the Democrats who have been raising concerns about is this vaccine being rushed. And so we need prominent Democrats uh, having their pictures taken. And then there were other people who said, you know, this whole thing is politicized and that's unfortunate. And so we really need some apolitical bridge figures getting vaccinated. And though of course the one that came to the, the the top of the list at least in that you know my my Twitter feed was Dolly Pardon. Everyone's like, you know, if if Dolly if Dolly is seen getting the vaccine, then you know that'll convince other people. But one of the, the ideas that came up really was, you know, you need to see the people that you interact with routinely, people in your community. You know, your, your um, you know, your, your, your clergy, your, your own family doctor, you know, uh, you know, your mayor. And, and I think that's really where the, all this, you know, <laughs> epidemic of, of uh, selfies uh, of getting shots has come from. I will tell you just anecdotally, I tried to take a selfie of myself getting vaccinated, not for COVID-19, but for hep, uh, uh, sorry, HPV. I, uh, HPV, I thought, you know, let me show people that I'm putting my money where my mouth is and I'm getting this, this vaccine. Um, and I was not allowed to at the time by the, by the health site who told me that it was against HIPAA. And of course there's nothing whatsoever in HIPAA about a patient taking a picture right. of themselves getting. And, you know, at the moment I just didn't, I didn't have the fortitude to get into an argument about it but it, it was deeply annoying to me um so that's just a that's just that's, a side side story
0: so so let, let's shift a little bit to vaccine mandates um and what i mean by that and again i you know there are lots of articles written and i i think i um we both read the same articles but 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 uh, there is there are folks that i've talked to that say you know what this pandemic has cost a lot of lives that uh, and many deaths that could have been prevented And um, unless we mandate the vaccines and make it mandatory, not for everyone, but for certain subpopulations, we are not going to to do well. So um, help us understand, A, is this ethical? Is this legal? I know you're not a lawyer, but I think there's an intersection between ethics and, 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 and law. Is this something that the government could do, the state could do, the hospital could do, the schools could do, I mean, I don't know, is this something that is allowed in the US?
1: Uh, You know, there are really like 20 different things I want to say in response to that. So let me just try to to, to say one or two of them at least. I think it is an open question as to whether, uh, an open legal question, and as you pointed out, I'm not a lawyer. An open legal question whether any one of those, the federal government, the state government, employers, schools, etc., could mandate a vaccine that again, is not fully approved. This is a vaccine that is being used under an emergency use authorization. You know, we've, we've never ha- had that question before. We've never tried to mandate anything under an emergency use authorization. So it's really something that the lawyers are gonna have to figure out. Um, I've seen conflicting opinions on this. I think it is not ethical to do so. And I can come back to that in a minute if you want to, uh, but just basically, you know, I find it I find it morally problematic to mandate something that we are not 100% positive is safe and effective yet, uh, and also I think it's deeply desir- un- undesirable to do so. I think given the people who are already concerned about this vaccine, uh, to to suddenly have like this strong arm of either the law or your employer saying you have to have this is, is gonna backfire. So I'm not a fan of, of mandates in this situation. Now, I will say for an approved drug, yes, any of those can mandate things and they and it's not uncommon for them to do so. So I think most people realize that for attending public school in, in all of the 50 states, there are some mandated vaccines that students have to receive. And I, uh, in, in one of those people who work at a healthcare institution where the flu shot is, is mandated. So it is certainly uh, legal and and has been done that approved vaccines can be mandated. Uh, I, I think an unapproved vaccine under emergency use is. Is uncharted water, but I would strongly urge people not to go that pathway.
0: So, if it, if and when it gets the full FDA approval, uh, the mandate would be at a very local level—a school, hospital. It's not something that the state. I mean, there's no way that the state or the federal government could mandate it, right?
1: I'm not going to say it's impossible. I'm going to say it's unlikely. I think, I think, I think once the COVID-19 vaccine is Fully approved by the FDA, it is incredibly likely that healthcare institutions, at least many of them, are going to mandate it for employees, and it could be that certain uh, local jurisdictions, such as, for example, a city, does so. Particularly if they're having a, a heavy outbreak there.
0: I mean, do, do you ever envision? Do you ever envision United Airlines or American Airlines say, in order for you to to fly us, you have to have a proof of either a vaccine or or a negative test, for example, like if you're not vaccinated. Well, we neg-
1: already have that. I mean, that's a completely different. So, okay, you, you already told people what day of the, what day we're we're yeah. um, <laughs> taping this on. Th- this goes to the the question right now of people saying, you know, well, do you have a constitutional right to be on Twitter, or can your Twitter Uh, account be deactivated by the company. You have no constitutional right to be on Twitter. You have a constitutional right to free speech, but it doesn't have to be on a a private platform. So, you know, you have a constitutional right, perhaps, to decline vaccination, unless there's a mandate, but uh, it is up to an individual uh, business to decide whether they're going to serve you or not. So we already have airlines, and we already have foreign nations saying you know unless you have a negative test within 48 hours of boarding then we're not going to allow you on our our our, on our airplane or we're not going to allow you to to you know, come enjoy your beach vacation. You're going to have to get back on the air, airline and and leave. Uh, you know that that's international.
0: That's... Yeah, yeah, international flights. That is actually. True. I haven't seen it domestically. I? Mean, I don't know. I haven't really flown in a while, so I don't know. But I haven't seen domestic uh, flights. Yeah, I,
1: ha- and... I haven't flown in over a year. I I don't yeah. I don't know for sure about domestic, but certainly internationally, these these are, are these policies are already in effect.
0: When you next fly, you may have to you may have to actually start remembering how to buckle the seat belt because you forgot. And we all have forgotten how to actually. Finish. You know,
1: the thing that I'm truly concerned about is that I will have forgot my um, my hard fought and deeply prized packing skills. I had I had been able to, you know, get suits and you know uh, accessories and all my laptop equipment with all their all their paraphernalia. I had been able to get it all into one carry on, and I'm deeply concerned that I'm not going to remember how to do this when it's time yeah. to start traveling again.
0: Yeah, but you know, I, you know, talking about Twitter and other um, companies, like for me, I view Twitter is not a private company; it's a public company. It's a publicly traded company. So, I mean, the way at least my cynical self says, if the shareholders that uh, that really control Twitter are unhappy with the Twitter decision, whatever that decision is, they will actually feel it in their stock price as well as in their market cap, and the same for United Airlines and so forth. I think a private health company doesn't really care about wall street but i think economics obviously play a role i mean you're you're a company that's publicly traded all of a sudden just theoretically you have millions of people dumping the shares the stock price plummet and you lose billions of dollars i see a lot of these decisions change based on economics so i don't see it as really private private i see it uh, publicly traded so as a different different platform.
1: So I I agree with your nuance added there. I was talking public in terms of like governmental. So like yeah, if yeah, you had a, yeah. a government no, I know what you're saying. If you had a governmental version of Facebook, god forbid, like would we yeah. be able to kick people off of it.
0: No, no, I know what you're saying. I think uh, what 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 I maybe I was conveying to the listeners as well is I always feel economics control a lot of some of the decisions that these companies do and you know for example, if the decision is favorable and the stock price goes up Yes, more power to it. If not, I totally see things will reverse immediately because that's really what ultimately these companies will care about. Absolutely, uh, at least that's what I think. Um, I, I agree. So, so vaccine mandates—if um, it gets FDA full approval, you know, schools and healthcare institutions could mandate that. And then you, as a somebody, let's say you're a nurse or a physician at the hospital you you have to show a proof to work there because the hospital could control that it's it's in it's in their jurisdiction
1: so i mean for example i said my institution requires annual flu vaccines i i might be slightly hyperbolic when i say hundreds of emails but it feels like hundreds of emails reminding us that it's flu season again and that a date is coming up by which we have to have you know in our in our uh, employment record proof that we've been vaccinated this year. We all get little stickers on our badges to show that yes, we've been vaccinated. Uh, and our, our institution has actually terminated someone who wanted to not get vaccinated. So, it, and our institution has taken very, very seriously. And I, I could completely see that being carried over to COVID-19 once a vaccine is fully approved.
0: Now, as we continue to vaccinate folks, and as we continue to to look at possible emerging side effects and, um, if any, I don't know I think it's going to be very tough to know how much of whatever we witness after the vaccine is really related to the vaccines versus not. I mean, my fear is that, you know, any heart attack that happens after uh, uh, several weeks after the vaccine will be blamed on the vaccine. Somebody gets a stroke uh, five weeks after the second shot; it's the second shot. I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. And
1: so, and so, so, uh, you know, that is exactly the reason why vaccine trials are as large as they are. So, you know, you're from the world of oncology. Your listeners might be from various therapeutic areas in which, you know, even a phase three trial might, depending on the, depending on the drug not might not be more than a few hundred people or, or at most a few thousand people, A, a vaccine trial, you know, a common number for a phase three vaccine trial is about 30,000 people. So the idea is, you know, simply because <laughs> there are going to be those concerns about, you know, well, did this one incidence of someone having a heart attack or or three instances of, you know, transverse myelitis or, or you know, 20 instances of anaphylactic reaction. Are these related to the vaccine or were were these just sort of uh, examples of what happens in the the population just routinely? And that's why these trials are so large.
0: And that's very reassuring. So from a scale of zero to 10, 10 being Dr. Bateman House is most satisfied with what's going on with vaccine distribution and what has happened over the past month. Zero being very, very unhappy, and um, where are you?
1: I'm about at a two, but I'm not ready to throw in the rag and, and say, you know, this is messed up beyond a- any uh, ability to, to write itself. Uh, I, I think that with a few strategic decisions made soon, and we have a really good opportunity for that because we're getting ready to change presidential administrations within the next 12 days. I think with a few high-level decisions um, providing policy and, and guidance on some of the more thorny issues for those local health departments who are so under stress to be able to utilize, whether that's uh, making federal funds available that haven't been available up until now or uh, deploying CDC staff out to be able to, to help you know, create systems and decisions what, whatever it is that happens soon I think we can right this ship come back to me in a month or so and we'll see if I uh, still feel that way and if the data is starting to be, to bear that out or not but I think I think I think that we I think we have a very small and window of opportunity to make this work
0: yeah I agree I, I would like to see it above five out of ten I was I, I'm like you I give it two out of ten and I'm you know, the thing is, what disturbs me is, <clears throat> there's not a lot of guidance. I think I told you before we started taping, I, I called the primary care physician of uh, for my parents. And I said, you know, I just, uh, just want to know, like, when do you, what's the ballpark so I could plan the appointment and just uh, block my schedule and bring my parents for the vaccines. Literally, like, zero knowledge into anything. Like, we don't know, we'll, 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 Check us with uh, check back with us in a month. Like there's not even any guidance except just call us again. Um, so
1: I spoke with my parents this morning. Both of my parents are military veterans and uh, you know as, as someone in public health, I've been hounding them to try to figure out how to get the vaccine. but they're, they're both elderly. And, you know, it's very interesting. My mother had had it all charted out and she said, well, our primary care physician says that we'd be eligible to get it through her, you know, at this point in time. However, if we go to the health department, we'd be eligible to get it from them at this point in time. And if we go to the Veterans Administration, we'd be able to get it from them at this point in time. And, you know, this is really far too complicated. We need something that is much more streamlined. You know, my mother is retired she has time to call around and ask these things she has a computer she has internet she knows you know english is her first language uh you know she has really good health insurance and doesn't need to worry about you know if someone says there's a copay or something you know she she is highly privileged and if it's this complicated for her just imagine the number of people who are not able to do anything at this point in time to get a vaccine even if they fall into one of those high priority categories
0: yeah, it should be really much simpler. I I can't agree with you anymore, m- more than that, Allison. Any other issues when you talk it? we talk about? We talked about vaccine distribution. We talked about access. We talked about the EU AFD approval mandates. I want to make sure I give a full picture to the listeners about vaccines because there's so much out there, and uh, some of it is uh, uh, you know misinformation. Some of it is. Uh, opinions, not sort of anything else you want to share with listeners about vaccines and what we talked about?
1: Well, I guess I will plead to your healthcare audience to be mindful of what they share in a public setting. So, you know, I know a number of people who have gotten the vaccine and after the second dose have had, you know, flu type symptoms. And it's one thing to say, I have a flu type symptom for, you know, 24 hours, I felt rough, but then it passed. Or, you know, I, I was still able to go to work, but I had muscle aches and a headache. It's one thing to be very uh, measured in what you say. It's another thing to post in the middle of that 24 hours, oh my God, I'm dying. So I just want people to to, you know, be mindful of especially if you're a healthcare worker, whatever you say about your experience is going to, to really be uh, picked up and, and spread perhaps in, in ways that you did not intend. So that's that's one caution I have for people.
0: Thank you, thank you. Look, um, I hope the next time I uh, have you on the show, and there's always next times, that uh, things are a little bit better and uh, the vaccines hopefully have reached more folks and maybe there's-
1: uh, uh- Charlie, I'm sorry, I have to I have to say one more thing. Sorry, I should have thought of this a second ago. Remember earlier, I said that vaccines are not going to bring us to the light at the end of the tunnel, and that only successful vaccination programs would do that. Yes. Even successful vaccination programs are not going to be sufficient to get us there as quickly as possible without other interventions. So I just want to remind people to wear their mask, you know, avoid public gatherings, wash their hands, um, you know, really to, to sort of act as though they have the virus, even if they don't think they do, in order to prevent unintended community spread. Because, you know, even a vaccine and even a well-run vaccination program should only be one uh, component of our our multifactorial response.
0: I think I'm going to wear a mask on a plane forever, by the way. I don't think (laughs) on a plane...
1: You know, it's not, I, I, I'm one of those people who every time I fly, I get sick. So I, I think I might be following your strategy here. And I have to say, uh, I've decided that mask over... Over winter months are actually like pretty comfortable. So, I mean, maybe, maybe during winter I might become a routine mask wearer because I'm like, you know, I've always covered my neck with a scarf and my hat with a, my, my head with a hat. But, you know, now that I got this mask across like the center of my face, this is kind of comfy too. So, yeah.
0: Well. Thank you so much. This is uh, uh, our first uh, discussion for 2021. Happy New Year. I hope uh, that we talk at uh, uh, much more pleasant times and good luck with the grant. My understanding you're uh, working on a very important grant.
1: Uh, well, all grants are important to the people whose salaries they pay, so thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Happy New Year, stay safe, and, and may we all uh, start to see that light at the end of the tunnel getting, getting brighter.
0: I hope so. Take care. Bye now. Thank you for listening and for taking the time to uh, join us for today's conversation uh, with Dr. Allison bateman house Really a lot of uh, things that we talked about. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned a little bit more about the complexity of vaccines and distribution and all the debacle that we are in. Um, I also um, hope that, uh, you know, the next time we talk about vaccines, things are better and the right people who are most vulnerable, who are more likely to die if they are infected with the disease are definitely receiving the vaccine, which is not the case yet. Hopefully that might change. We will have to see. But thanks for listening. Thanks, to Dr. Allison Bateman House, for joining us uh, on today's podcast. I want to make sure I hear from you. Let me know how bad or good I'm doing. You can send me an email to shadinabhanoo at outlook.com or direct message me on Twitter at shadinabhan. That's at C H A D I N A B H A N. And let me know how I'm doing and where the opportunities are in terms of changing topics and other topics to address as well as any suggested or recommended guests. You can find the show on all podcast outlets. Please subscribe, rate, review, and refer a colleague or a friend to the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Before I let you go, I'm gonna leave you with uh, a saying. I, I, I read that. Um, But I don't know actually who said it, but what the saying goes, ethics is knowing the difference between what you have a right to do and what is right to do. Until next time, take care and see you next week on the Healthcare Unfiltered Podcast.